Hello, and welcome to the Clockwork Game Design Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Bergun. Going to be another big episode with a lot of new content and a lot of new cool stuff. I got a lot of feedback on the last episode, and it was really positive. So I'm going to be taking that feedback and working it into a new episode. This show is going to have a variety of different things. I have a couple of uh, little mini monologues about game design, some stuff about uh, my experience with game design, uh, specifically with paper prototyping. I'm gonna be talking about that. I'm gonna be talking about decisions, interesting decisions. Um, That's gonna be the first thing that we get into. Longtime fans of my stuff might remember Evazair from my old podcast. I'm gonna have him on and we're gonna talk a little bit about XCOM. He's written a couple of articles about it and so we're gonna have a good conversation about that. And it actually went really well, so I'm excited to show that to you. Before I get into the actual content, I just want to quickly say uh, the Patreon has been going um, a lot better. I, uh, I've i changed the tiers up a little bit, responded to some feedback from some of my patrons. And so, yeah, this is a really good time to get on there. Now at the $10 level, you can get all my games. And I've I've changed other rewards around now. So, um, so you do get Discord, a special Discord role for being a patron. You get all my games uh, at the $10 level now not to mention all kinds of behind the scenes stuff like i every time i'm working on things and i have some early glimpse of something um you know i i tend to post it just for my patrons only and i don't do that um you know in three days it unlocks thing um i just it's just exclusive for my patrons and you know it's pretty much they're all the only ones who are probably ever going to see this stuff so you know try to become you can get that kind of stuff at you know just one dollar so um do think about that uh, if you like the show and you like the work that I do, uh, it really helps a lot. Thank you so much. So anyway, so without any further uh, stuff up front, let's get right into our conversation, my conversation with myself about uh, interesting decisions and this idea of decisions in games. So for a long time, strategy games in particular have been um, described as a series of interesting decisions. The phrase decisions, um, interesting decisions has been kind of like one of the most common things that you would hear uh, in a discussion on strategy game design. Um, It is often attributed to Sid Meier, the original designer of um, the original Civilization video game. And uh, he also actually gave a talk in 2012 um, wherein he talked uh, uh, at length about um, at GDC, I believe. Uh, where he talked a lot about um, interesting decisions and what makes decisions interesting and all that kind of stuff. I myself had also been a subscriber to this um, sort of use of language. But now um, in the last couple of years, I've started to like kind of shy away from it a little bit for a couple of reasons, which we're going to get into. But yeah, my big take, my big take here is there's dangers in using the phrase uh, decisions uh, with regards to strategy games. Um, but first, let's 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 get into a couple of these uh, Sid Meier quotes real quick from his 2012 um, GDC talk. Once a game implements interesting decisions, what makes them more interesting? A strong balance of risk reward choices, adjusting how impact impactful choices are, giving the player more or less information, providing time frame within uh, which to make decisions or adjusting how many choices there are in the game can all completely define and refine a design. The last way to make a game more interesting through decisions, get rid of ones that are not working. You've tried all these things and they don't work. Maybe the decision is uh, just one that you could 
take out of your game, says Meyer. This is also, I took some of this from um, a Game of Sutra article that was uh, summarizing what he had said at GDC. And, you know, none of this stuff is really surprising or, you know, different from the norm. Uh, it's been kind of like what everyone has said about um, strategy games, uh, strategy game design. And, and this kind of language of like, you know, adjust how impactful choices are, giving the player more or less information. It's like, you're just telling us what all the knobs are. You're not telling us like what to do, what to value. So that's been a long time standing critique of mine about game design theory um, in, in general for a long time. But what is newer here is this idea that, um, you know, decisions, if you think about the way uh, that Sid Meier talks about it um, as a, a game is being a series of interesting decisions. And I really think that he's right, that that is how um, we tend to make games. But I also think that that's a problem um, because we shouldn't actually want a series of interesting decisions. Um, and actually, I think a lot of what we end up doing, a lot of our games are tactical games. Um, and I've talked about this before, that we think of ourselves as making strategy games, but what we really are making are tactics games that just go on a really long time. And there's a difference there. I The, the example that I like to give is a critique of my own work um, in Oro, especially when you start getting better at the game. Um, one of the things that it does is it scales up as you get better in the single player ELO, it scales up the amount of points that you need in order to win. So like in the early matches, you know, when you're in like bronze rank, you might only need 30, 40 points to win. And then by, you know, master rank or whatever, you need like 100 points, 115 points, stuff like that. Starts getting really high in, in number. And the thing is that the arcs of the game, this, the maximum sized arcs of the game, stuff like cooldowns on your ultimate or, you know, where you are in the on the mission, like on the actual map or how many monsters are around you, things like that. Those, the size of those is pretty fixed. And, you know, if I were redesigning Oro, and hey, I am for Alakaram, if anyone uh, is interested, there's been some development on Alakaram. Uh, there should be an article on that coming soon. But my point is, if I were redesigning Oro um, as a tactics game, which it is, it would have a very controlled length. So anyway, the point is that Oro, as it stands, the, the, in the PC version, um, it it has this problem of being just a long tactics game. You know, you have these very small arcs and you just do them over and over and over and over and over again many times. And that I also think applies to a lot of video games. I think that applies to Civ very strongly, actually. So that's something that I want us to all sort of start moving away from and in, in terms of if we want to build strategy games. I also would say it's kind of a side point, but strategy games are more of like if you look at strategy games versus tactics games, I do think that strategy games are a sort of more pure um, version of that form. I would say they are a like kind of a better version of this of that form. Um, and by that, I mean, tactics games um, are inherently a little bit more puzzle ish and they don't bring out as much what is, um, I think, what is great about strategy games, which is strategy games kind of incorporate all of the forms into one. And 
they can they can be a little bit toy like they can be a little bit puzzle like they obviously have a contest element tactics games are more like puzzles generally speaking um and that's also my problem with calculation and why i want to move strategy games away from calculation as we are trying to move strategy games closer to um these longer arcs uh, and I've written a few articles about this. If you, uh, if you, I will link a couple articles in the show notes that are relevant. If some of the stuff is confusing when I'm talking about long arcs and short arcs and what those mean, I do think some of those are are you know rather colloquially understood. But um, you know, I've also gotten sort of uh, more nitty gritty with them and what I mean by those things. So maybe check out those articles if you haven't already. But. The, uh, the point is, as we move more towards strategy games uh, and strategy, here's the thing. Even if my point that strategy games are sort of better than tactics games uh, is not accepted, like if, you, if you're listening and you're like, no, that's not true, that's not true, that's false, whatever, fine. Uh, even if that's the case, it still would probably, you'd probably agree that, hey, it'd be pretty good if we could design strategy games, you know, at all. Whereas I, I really think that if you look at the mass, most strategy games that we have are still just tactics games. And this points to a larger problem of we don't really think that much about match structure, about like the match meaning a lot. Um, we, we think about that a little bit more when it comes to multiplayer games because there's this competitive element to it. But we, in terms of single player games, we have like no respect at all for you know, the match, the match end feedback, the win loss, the structure of a match overall, we tend to really think about strategy games even as quite similar to, you know, roguelikes, Tetris, things, endless sort of things where the form, the length of it doesn't really matter. It's not really something that people think about. How long is a Civ match? I don't know. Just like let it go, you know, like just like let it roll, let the tape roll and see what happens, you know? Um, Civ, Civ is such a good example, and I'm using that because, you know, Sid Meier is the interesting decisions guy, and Civ is such a good example of this just ever-rolling, loose simulator. Um, and in fact, I think that Civ works best as just a toy, and you, you sort of don't even think too much about the goals. Um, you kind of do, but, like, you kind of don't, too. And you kind of, like, come up with new goals on the fly, and... You know, you, you do end up playing with it more like a toy. And in fact, I think a lot of these grand strategy games are at their best when they embrace being a toy. Um, some of the Paradox games maybe um, would be good examples of that. Although notably not Stellaris. Stellaris, I went into a like a sort of deep dive on Stellaris uh, last month or two ago. And that is another really good example of just this ever rolling, you know, small reward loop um thing and that's that's another thing that you see in and that's why i think tactics um and short arcs are so appealing and natural for designers is that it's very easy to sort of like get that little dopamine wheel uh rolling you know where you just you have these little interactions these very short-term interactions you think about it a lot which i'm going to talk about in a second and then you bing get a little reward a little you know uh, you did the right thing. You basically won this small little interaction and you just get that going, 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 going. That's why Civ has that, uh, just one more turn, um, uh, meme about it where, you know, people sort of are playing in a kind of addicted way. And I, I've noticed that myself, you know, I'll, Civ takes hours to finish a match, even if you play on like a small match and stuff, a small map and everything. 
And I notice myself playing and playing and playing and playing because like I'm getting all these little reward loops. Solaris is weirdly good about that reward loop stuff and weirdly terrible about like, I mean, a lot of other things, uh, including just having a, a form, uh, uh, you know, lar larger arcs. So so the reason I want to move away from this decision language is, is twofold. One is that they are um, they they push us into tactical ways of thinking. Um, and that's particularly true for designers. I think that game designers are are sort of being encouraged to think, oh, should I add this decision? Should I remove this decision? And so they're necessarily thinking about this small little tactical layer of the game. And I think just the framing of decisions, like I'm not saying that games shouldn't have something that could be called decisions in them. Um, and I'll talk about what my proposal for how strategy games should look would be. But I do think that the term decision is just not the best because it accentuates uh, the tactical and the local. I also think another thing about decision that I don't like is that it accentuates thinking, which is, you know, sitting there and like really usually it's calculating. Thinking is basically calculating. I mean, yeah, you could be sort of more heuristically calculating um, or you could be just like, you know, actually mapping out like, okay, he moves there. I move here. He moves there. I move here. That kind of stuff. But in either case, you're, you're really just like sort of churning numbers and, and calculating. And, and this has been a problem, um, that I've talked about for a long time in strategy games, you know, and, and one of the ways that you can kind of limit that is with information horizon, which something like chess doesn't have at all. So, you know, you can sit there and kind of just like, at, like you, if, if we play chess and I think about everything for, I don't know, five seconds, and you think about everything for 10 or 15 seconds, you're just going to be making better moves, not because you have a better understanding of the system, but because you've just done more calculation. And that's something that I've always thought was kind of a problem um, in strategy games. And I want to limit that. I don't want, and I mean, this is a very practical concern. I've noticed like, especially in board games, tabletop board games, where it's like socially weird to have a timer. I've noticed uh, that that it's it's very common that you, you know, one friend always takes the longest with their turns and they also always win. And th what's being measured here is not their understanding of the system or necessarily their creativity or any of the things that we we sort of love about um, strategy games, but just how much labor they put into thinking of through all the the calculations and heuristic, you know, uh, assessments. And that's not what we want strategy games to be. And I think that the decision, you know, the class, we need to move away from, and this is kind of a theme with me, but we need to move away from that, like, image of the person sitting at the chessboard and just, like, you know, with their, their head in their hand, just, like, thinking and thinking. Like, that shouldn't happen in strategy games. So let, let's get into my vision of what strategy games should look like instead of that. I think that strategy games should basically present you with the game state and then you rather quickly just sort of react and you just like make an input and um, it shouldn't be so fast that you make input errors, but it should be like, you know, pretty immediate. So, so there's a balance there. Like, you know, I think most real time games, for example, certainly like MOBA games and, and, and most real time games are, are too fast and they are very input error prone. Um, actually MOBAs are maybe not the best example because they're better than, I don't know, like a team fortress or way better than like Starcraft. Starcraft is, is extremely input error prone and that is too fast and that's not okay. I think that also um, a good, an okay example 
is um, just any turn-based game with a very short timer. Um, I think that there's other problems that timers bring in, like hard timers like that cause other issues sometimes. But I mean, I you know, um, I think, for example, Go, the only way to play Go, if you're going to play Go, which I don't really recommend, um, is to play Blitz Go, which is like 10 second timer. And in fact, um, I think some Go players even recommend playing rather quickly um, as a way to learn more quickly and to learn more heuristically and, and sort of devalue the tactical battles. Although, unfortunately, I mean, ultimately, it's going to come down to those tactical battles at some point. You can only sort of like play loose and strategically for so long and go before there comes a tactical battle that you have to either win or lose. And if you just aren't good at the tactical battles, if you haven't done enough, uh, you know, go puzzles and and like and you don't sit there like uh, calculating it through in the 10 seconds that you have. Um, then you're going to lose the tactical battle. And if you lose a few tactical battles, that's that's the game. So anyway, that's that's my go critique for this episode. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I, I'm thinking I imagine I envision game strategy games where you just you see the state and you just what's your answer? Just answer, you know, like, what would you do right now? And you're like, um, I'll do this, you know, like maybe a brief moment where you just make sure that this is what you want to say. It's kind of like like language, like, you know, if you're talking to somebody, you know, you don't sit there and be like, like, if I ask you a question, you don't sit there and like think for 30 seconds. You may like stumble, like, you know, wander for like, a I don't know, like a few words and then like give me an answer. So that that's, I think, a better way to, to think about design is that like we're just presenting. We're, we're having a conversation with the player and we're what we're trying to do is like throughout this conversation, we're trying to understand their model of the system because that's really what should be measured here is how accurate is your model of this system. I don't want to know how much time you're spending doing math crunches in your head. I want to know what how accurate is your model. So because if you have a perfectly accurate model and I give you, you know, and, and I just ask you questions, you will basically give me right answers. Of course, there might be a little bit wiggle room there and that's fine. You know um, that that should be. That should be acceptable. But um, for the most part, you would give like correct answers. Of course, this is a hypothetical in real strategy games. No one should have a completely accurate model of the of the strategy space. And, uh, you know, games strategy games shouldn't be solvable, obviously. Now, does this mean games all have to be real time? No, um, I, I am leaning more into real time these days for a combination of reasons. One is the reason I just gave, which is that it 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 makes what I'm talking about natural. In a real-time game, we we sort of understand naturally that like you don't just sit there just thinking, right? In a real-time game. You you do. You you act, you know? And and so what I would often advise is a slow real-time. Um slow enough that, you know, there's not going to be a lot of input error. We don't want to measure how many times you misclick, you know? Um, we don't, we want as little input error as possible. We just want to know what in your mind, what is your, um, we want to get a snapshot of your, your, the accuracy of your model of the system. As for turn-based, I think it's a little more tricky, especially when it comes to single player turn-based. Like you can't, I feel that players are going to have a hard time accepting a timer on a, um, turn-based single player strategy game. In, in my experience that it, that's just a, that's a tough sell. So, you know, I'm 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 talking about game design theory, but I'm also operating in the universe and the world and I care about actually making games. 
and I care about giving you guys things that can help you make games in the actual world. And so we have to like respond to the language that people are using um, and 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 operate in the conversation as it's happening. So I, th- I do think that slow real time is the most realistic probably way to achieve what I'm trying to get at. And that's that's why I'm, I'm tending to lean there um, in my designs going forward, uh, at least for the time being. I have been thinking a lot about Omnacronom uh, as a real time game. I have some really interesting ideas for that. I'm a little bit intimidated by how much work it's going to be, but, um, you know, we'll see how things go. Um, yeah. And so I'd love your thoughts on this, on this decisions framing and whether we should get away from that. What's a good term instead of decisions? I mean, strategies, plans, some have suggested planning rather than decision-making. I think that's okay. Um, I think planning can also have similar problems, but I like at least that planning, does interface it has only one of the problems it doesn't have the tactical problem because planning does suggest longer arcs i think but planning also um does kind of sound calculationy i don't know like i almost want to just say instead of decision making let's call it playing right you're just you're engaging with the system you're playing and i and i want games strategy games good strategy games should have a toy like play quality to them because they're complex and they they have a lot going on so that's that's kind of where i'm at with the decision stuff but i'd love to hear your comments and your thoughts and that pretty much wraps up this segment of the show so next up we have a conversation with eva zayer eva zayer has a blog called nohidden.info which um y'all should check out i'll link it in the show notes of course um he has recently written two articles about XCOM, the 2012 version and the uh, sequel, XCOM 2. Um, and specifically, we talk a lot about um, uh, design problems having to do with information and how, how, how the game deals with the problem of its information horizon, uh, I would really call it. Um, but yeah, it was a good conversation, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. So yeah, I wanted to get you on the show to um, talk about um, a couple of articles that you've written for your blog. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, a couple of articles that you've written for your blog, nohidden.info, which is a great uh, a great name uh, for a Thank blog, you. game design blog. Um, and so you've, you're a big like XCOM player and um, I've played a good amount of XCOM in the past and we've had a bunch of really good conversations about XCOM and other tactical games. And uh, so yeah, anyway, you've wrote these two articles about XCOM, uh, the XCOM 2012 uh, and uh, the sequel and the ways that it deals with um, specifically, um, I guess, hidden information and uh, um, like that, that the classic, uh, you know, don't discover an alien pod on your last uh, turn, uh, problem that people have described from XCOM mm-hmm. 2012. Um, but yeah, so t- tell me about these two articles, give us the run through for people who haven't read it. I will definitely link them in the show notes. Uh, but for people who have not read the articles, can you just give us a, a quick run through of like what the basic concepts are? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm, I'm very interested in talking about and discovering ways of like looking at how games incentivize players to do specific things or to engage in certain tactics that they might not otherwise want or that the game designers might not necessarily want or that might work against the uh, what makes the game most interesting to play. 
And in XCOM, I found a, the new XCOM particularly, I found an interesting example of this because uh, there is a, a widely known problem. Some people might not call it a problem, but I think it's a problem in XCOM um, in the tactical missions where because the penalties for overextending your squad are so harsh and uh, the fog of war covers so much of the map and it's very difficult to get an idea of where aliens are until you're actually fighting them. Um, you end up in a situation where you slowly creep your troops forward one at a time. And after you move the first guy forward on your turn, all the other guys and girls that you're moving forward, you don't want them to reveal a single other tile that wasn't revealed by the first guy. And uh, my articles are all about this. What causes this to happen? Why, why this tactic of creeping forward is so prevalent and um, so, such an obviously good thing that you would do to avoid unnecessary risk. And the, the articles analyze the rules that lead to this problem, which, are mo which mostly has to do with the fact that um, hidden information about where aliens are means that you just you don't know what's going on at all. So every single tile right. you reveal could have aliens on it, and you want to make sure that they don't, because as soon as you reveal an alien, you have to start fighting them. And even though you get kind of a free, you know, you might get as much as a, uh, you might get as much as one free turn against them after they scamper into cover, you still have to <clears throat> deal with aliens that appeared, you know, at some basically random place in the edges of what you can see. Right. And they they could be they could be in a really advantageous position for you, for you, or they could be in a terrible position for you that totally ruins your how all your dudes are yeah. set up. So, um, like, it's a, just huge change in what you know about the game world as soon as you reveal aliens. And it mm -hmm. can lead to, and if you're in a bad position, you could lose soldiers. And losing soldiers is forever in XCOM, so it's a pretty bad thing. Yeah, and, and part of that that's important is that XCOM 2012 introduced this idea of pods, um, where mm -hmm. um, the previous XCOM games, and actually most squad tactics games, work uh don't have any such system they are just you know if you see one alien you see one alien and that alien starts engaging with you and whatever um and i can see how there's a problem with that too in that like you are more maybe able to coordinate um all your troops and that one alien is kind of just one alien so you're just picking them off one at a time and i think that's probably what they were thinking with designing the 2012 system was like mm -hmm. let's make it kind of a little bit more fair that like every time you see an alien you see a pod that's like a little bit more of a match for your your group right right you want to break it you want they want they want to break the encounters the combat encounters into chunks that are challenging but still beatable in sequence right. because the idea is typically that you have you know three to five pods on a map and pods are like three to five aliens sometimes you might only have one alien in a pod if it's a really powerful powerful alien but like you know it's it's a way of just having a chunk of content that you have to tr you have to beat before you can move on to other stuff and to make sure the challenge is not like puny when you because sure. like if you only have if you're able to just kind of draw out one alien at a time as you know you could you see in a lot of video games that you play, even like first person shooters and stuff, you kind of want to just draw one guy out at a time and then for sure ambush and kill him. That's a video game tactic that everybody does a lot if they know how to play video games. Yeah. So um having an entire pod activated at a time is like really cool in a way as a design decision because it means that you're actually dealing with more aliens and it's more dangerous. So things are the stakes are higher and you get to you have to know more about the combat system because you can't just take one guy out and assassinate him 
and then wait for the next guy to walk by and assassinate him and so on and so forth. Right. So yeah, it, 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 it is, it's a step forward in that sense for the design, but it's also a step backward or a step sideways or kind of backward because that just, it, it ends up emphasizing the penalties more than the benefits, I guess you could say. Since yeah, I, I have a couple having of having to deal with three aliens is like, like having to deal with like three or four aliens is so much more hard than dealing with uh, one. Yeah. And, and, and the, it's not like the penalties for uh, screwing up have gotten lighter with this. They, right. They're just as bad. <laughs> well, I also think that there's uh there's two distinct things you can do. Like there, I think it makes a lot of sense to sort of clump aliens together because you know, I actually think it's pretty tough to make the gameplay of my five Marines versus one alien right now. Um, like, I think that it's difficult to make that into an interesting challenge. So I do think it makes sense to clump up units. But the thing that's distinct about the 2012 system, and I'm just thinking through this because like with Oro, I had actually a similar, there was a phase where I was like, oh, units should always appear in like groups of like three or four. Um, and uh, that, that ended up like... You know what that can end up doing when you two clumpify things is that it uh, like um, pod number one and pod number two are almost like they're like you're on the same map, but they, they can sometimes almost sort of feel a little bit like separate matches. They don't interconnect to each other into a larger strategy thing sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I just that I just wanted to make the distinction between clumping units up which i think is is a good idea and probably necessary and the pod system which I, which alerts everyone in the pod like that's what makes it a pod is that if one alien sees you the whole pod is alerted and i think there's other rules too like they oh that's right they all move and like randomly scatter sort of right mm -hmm. when you see them right right um, and they can also stick it so that they get a free like move turn like a turn where right. they can only move and they and they move into cover but then also they can move away from you out of your vi your vision too right on the scamper turn, which is kind of awkward. And then in trying to reveal them, like by moving guys forward to try and engage them, you might activate other pods that are walking mm, by that a little bit further away. So it, it, things can kind of chain and get ugly yeah. because of the way they scamper and scatter. But also the fact that you always have these, you always have these units, these, you know, several alien pods wandering around the map in, in the darkened areas, yeah. even that it severely restricts the amount of the battlefield you can use to fight the aliens. So you end up kind of, not really using all the flanking and positional stuff as much as you might want to use it. Right. And also that, and, and that, but that also means that you're not fully using the combat system in general, because you're trying to kind of hold back and not discover any more of the map than you have to in the process of fighting the aliens and killing them off. Yeah. And I, I will definitely say that like, um, just from a player experience perspective, like it is absolutely the case that when I played, I beat uh, XCOM 2012. I didn't play number two yet. I plan to play it. I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, but when I played through XCOM 2012, you know, it was like pretty much every single turn, every single Marine, you're hitting the Overwatch button. And I feel like that's like when that happens, it's one of those, um, you know, really flashing red lights that like uh, something could be done better here, you know? Yeah, you need to encourage the player to like move out and you make use of the combat area and not just kind of sit and defend. Right, because defense, this is the... defense is always way too strong. Like, unless you design a game specifically so defense isn't way too strong, defense is going to be way too strong. And basically, right. every kind of game like this. Sure. Yeah, like because, a natural, well, like just having a bunch of actors sort of in a box by def by default, and you say no other rules. You can just move and shoot, uh, and the last man standing alive 
uh you know the, the, yeah. d- there's an inherent advantage to being defensive there and and it's and it's mostly because of the fact that uh if you have only if, if your combat is mostly ranged and the range is reasonably far compared to movement distances you can you have situations where like you you want to draw one guy into the area where all of your guys can fire so you can mm-hmm. quickly focus fire and kill the one guy before he can act more than once or at all right. And, you know, this this kind of plays out over, you, like, you're always trying to create this situation where all your guys can sh- shoot, or at, at, at least as many of your guys as necessary to kill something, like, in one turn, mm-hmm. shoot at one thing at a time, while nothing else can shoot at you. Like, this is just, that's just the basic strat- strategic concept of all of these games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as a designer of a game like this, you have to put mechanics in place, which prevent that from dominating and being the only thing you ever do. And some of those mechanics are like activate a whole pod at once because then the pod can kind of move together and, and, and communicate within its. Well, it doesn't actually do it this way, but it effectively communicates within itself about where the the uh, players' units are, mm-hmm. so it, it can kind of attack the players' units in a more in a more intelligent way, which prevents the player from really uh, ganging up on one guy. Although you you can still, but also if you think about it in XCOM, because of the way the cover is directional on the map, you have situation situations where you're revealing enemies that are somewhat far away which means that the cover that they have that they take against you covers basically all the angles you can move guys to get to if you don't move towards them Mm. which also so that encourages defense actually but the thing is that there's like no time limit or anything so the player almost wants to sit there and wait for the for the uh, aliens to move into him so that the player can catch the aliens while they're between cover, while sure. the player keeps all of his dudes in cover. Yeah. Which, that's obviously a very boring dynamic. You don't want to just be sitting down in cover the entire time. And that's what you're saying with, you know, you're spamming Overwatch every turn because you're yeah. just like, yeah, all my guys are going to be in cover, and now I just want to wait, want to wait for the aliens to expose themselves. That's not that's not fun. That's not as fun as the game play, gameplay can be. I think it's pretty boring. Some people kind of like it, but I think the game would be much better if you were forced to move out of cover yourself and try and deal with the risk and reward balancing of like, how do I move out of cover and not get shot at or get shot at as little as possible? And how do I move from cover to cover so that I don't have my flanks exposed as much while I'm also exposing the enemy's flanks? And once you get into these kinds of trade-offs, the game really opens up and becomes a lot more dynamic. Yeah, so, okay, so we've sort of described the problem that your articles um, lay out and that many have experienced in playing these games. And so now, then you sort of tell a story about um a couple of things that uh that um the developers tried in order to uh solve this problem or mitigate the problem and yeah so yeah, yeah there's two those. things there's there's xcom 2 uh has a way that i think actually works for the most part um xcom enemy within which is the expansion for the 2012 game the original xcom the original xcom remake <laughs> um yeah, so the so 2012's expansion added these meld canisters to each map, which are kind of like timed reward canisters that you can that if you run over to and pick up before they quote unquote expire, like like milk going bad or something, that they uh, that they give you some like resource that you can spend on beefing up your dudes between missions. And uh, my my analysis of this is that it basically doesn't succeed at all. It 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 very minimally helps encourage the player to uh, extend their squad a little bit more and move a little bit faster around the map. Mm. But at the same time, it, it feeds into a lot of the uh, spiral, the positive and negative feedback loops 
that cause death spirals or trivialize the game's difficulty because of like you're just too powerful and too good at the game. Right. Since since it's a reward that leads to your guys getting more powerful, and the way that you get it is by being a better player. You're basically rewarded for being a better player, which makes the game easier because you're beefing up your dudes. Yeah, this is and the inherent it, problem, the inherent rub between RPGs and strategy games, right? Right, exactly. Because the RPG, you want in an RPG, you want systems of a long-term progression, which kind of feed off of the the state of the game in a dynamic way. But but in a strategy game, you kind of rely on all these numbers being in certain places for all the different units and their capabilities, so that units can actually like present some kind of a strategic challenge, and it isn't just a walkover. And mm. in, 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 in like RPGs, like JRPGs, mostly it's the combat is supposed to be kind of an expression of your progression as as a, as a party or as a character. Mm-hmm. It's kind of be like, oh yeah, I can do damage in these numbers now, and the the enemy has even though the enemy has these defenses, I can get through them. Yeah, and it's it's like it's it's not a comp- it's not a complex. It's seldom, I should say, because some some RPGs kind of JRPGs kind of succeed at having some complexity, strategic yeah. complexity in the combat, but. Usually, like if you look at Dragon Warrior games, for instance, mm-hmm. it's like you're comparing. It's basically a way of comparing numbers drawn out over you know a few minutes. Yeah, and and it's like, did you did you optimize your character progression correctly to deal with these enemies or not? It's not yeah. so. It's not really. Did you are you good at making tactical decisions in the moment? Very little. And with yeah, X, with the game like XCOM, which is all about its, which is really centered on the tactical combat, and everything kind of feeds into that, and that's where the interesting decisions are designed to mostly come from um, within relatively tight bounds, like sometimes surprisingly tight bounds for the game to really function and mm-hmm. not just to be a walkover. And, and RPGs kind of toy with that really big time because so you're, suddenly the design has a lot of progression hooks in it and um, making those make work in combat to make things interesting is really difficult because often it just goes off overboard into being way too hard or way too easy. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, that's definitely something that's, uh, that, that, uh, that's, that's one of the reasons that I, I have found it really important to make more of a uh, conscious distinction between strategy games and RPGs, um, is, yeah. is this inherent rub of, um, you know, uh, we have these, um, rpgs uh and 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 i understand why like there's a lot of games like uh final fantasy tactics is a really good example of something that's uh, you know a lot of people would just consider it a straight up rpg but it actually has a lot of strategic depth and and almost kind of would function as a just a strategy game in some ways um and so there's a lot of blurring between them and there's some interesting areas to explore in there too but i also think that this one issue of like you're you're just getting more resources over time and it's like i'm entering into a chess match and now i have like you know three queens instead of two or instead of one right. you know uh that mm-hmm. kind of thing and uh that that does start messing with um uh, strategy games so so after the pod system what else um what else did XCOM try in XCOM two there was oh, right. uh, so there's the there's the meld the meld system yeah so the meld is giving you a reward for going out into the map more aggressively Mm-hmm. And picking up these canisters, which let you then beef up your dudes. So that didn't really work because it feeds into a lot of the the pre-existing uh, spiral spiraling power level problems that we right. just discussed. Now th- that was th- that was their attempt in. They didn't make any other attempts, as far as I know, in the expansions of uh, dealing with this problem. Then then XCOM two came out. They they did some huge changes to the way the game worked, both at a 
um, both in terms of uh, how the, how they set up missions, and also in terms of how you make that initial contact with the aliens and um, manage the hidden info in the beginning of the mission. So XCOM Two is a game as a game has the conceit that you are a the aliens have taken over the world, and you're kind of a guerrilla outfit that's fighting back against the aliens using little hit and run raids to to like destroy various alien monuments and otherwise cause mayhem. Mm-hmm. So the 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 setup allows the setup allows the develop the designers to play with the idea of like sneaking around as like a guerrilla force. Mm-hmm. And the way the way it achieves this is uh, in the design, like mechanic mechanically, is the player can see in the in the beginning of the mission, the player is in concealment, it's called, which is like a special state where their units can see the normal distance, but aliens can only see a short distance around them, hmm. which means that you see the aliens before they see you, like unless you do something like round a corner and there's an alien right there, which is not very common. And okay. you can also largely, because of the way the maps are laid out, you can kind of avoid that in most cases. Sure. So it's usually not a problem. But so the player can see the aliens and then, and not have to immediately fight them. And then the aliens just kind of keep patrolling, walking. Unfortunately, they walk around randomly, which okay. kind of sucks. But like as a design thing, is not great. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get into that more later. But for now, it's important to note that this kind of guerrilla mode that you start in also plays with... Um, also, there are time limits on the missions, which without the guerrilla mode would be really freaking difficult to design effectively. Like if you were just doing, if you're playing XCOM 2012 with mission timers, you'd just be blundering into aliens like left and right. It would be a kind of brutal experience, and a lot of people might not like it. It would be, be able, it would be a significantly more difficult game. Sure. Uh, but in XCOM 2, since you can see the aliens before they see you, mm-hmm. at least before you get in that first combat encounter. After the first combat encounter, things revert back to basically being XCOM 2012. Okay. In the sense of you know, like you, when you see a pod, they activate. So um, now that's that's not per pod, that's per the entire mission? Right. Interesting. Yes. And there are special abilities you can get. I think it's on the Ranger class specifically, where if... So the entire squad gains and loses concealment together. Like, they gain concealment at the beginning of the mission, and they lose it once they start shooting at something uh-huh. or use an ability. But uh, Rangers can gain an ability where they stay in concealment if they personally don't shoot. If, oh, so if the rest of the squad shoots and loses concealment the ranger can still maintain it as long as they don't engage in combat. Okay. So this, they, they do some stuff with that. So they make, they make use of it. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the way that concealment and really synergizes with the, t- the turn time limits really well, I think, because the, con- the concealment allows you to kind of scout things and get a good idea of how things are situated for a significant area of the map before you commit to like, the kind of risky stuff you're going to have to do to get to the end of the mission before the time limit runs out. Right. And missions usually involve kind of crossing a lot of space because you have to get from where you were dropped off by the Sky Ranger, the like the entry point of the mission. You have to get to an evac point, which is almost always on the other side of the map, or at least in the middle of the map. Hmm. And you and you might also have to get to other places on the map along the way too, like get to a prison and break out some resistance fighters. Stuff. And like this that. is all with a timer, you said. Yeah, this is all with the timer, and the timer. See, it seems like the timer is is always is like uh, they since the missions are procedurally generated. The timer itself seems to be procedurally set to a time which allows you, which which forces you to sprint on a couple of turns. So it prevents you from doing that 
that kind of creeping forward thing where you just do the where you just go forward one move action and then overwatch right you can't do that because if you did that you would you would lose all your guys due to the timer expiring oh so that's the penalty if the timer expires you literally lose all your guys anybody who has not been evac'd is lost wow or captured wow. by the aliens sure yeah that's that's so, intense yeah, so basically it, it, it gives you like these these gaping pits of terribleness on both sides of the going too fast, going too slow thing, mm-hmm. which kind of keeps you in the middle zone of going just fast enough. Right. And that that seemed in my experience with XCOM 2, that solve that basically solves the problem. Like you cannot you you still want to be somewhat conservative, but you still have to engage in combat and move forward. You can't just sit there and shoot. You have right. to be like, okay, I have to move forward towards the enemies because I have to get past them to get to the objective. Right. And that's a huge positive thing for the design of the game, I think. Yeah, that is really cool. And what what comes to mind for me is, um, you know, I used to really uh, like hate sequels uh, for some reason. And uh, well, I mean, for, I guess, obvious reasons that that most people don't like sequels or or have some kind of resistance to sequels. But like today, these days, you know, uh, it seems like, uh, you know, this team was working on XCOM. They're not the same team that was working on XCOM back in 1995. Um, or I don't think there's anyone that's involved. Maybe there might be, but I, I doubt it. And um, so they they really sort of made like kind of a new game with XCOM 2012. Like it's quite distinctly different from the 1995 game. And it seems like, you know, a lot of the design stuff in the original game to me struck me as very like, kind of like the first thing you would maybe think to do kind of stuff. And it sounds like they're, you know, over time they're they're like they're iterating on it. And you didn't you say there was an expansion for two that that sort of made it even better? Uh, yeah, it's Enemy Within is the name of the ex- not Enemy Within. Blah, that's the that's the XCOM 2012 expansion. It's called right. uh, it's called War of the Chosen. The XCOM. Oh, okay. Chosen. And, and, what and it, 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 it adds some stuff. I don't I don't I don't, I don't have uh, great positive feelings about it. It basically adds some variety. Oh, I see. It, it adds it adds it adds some new map generation stuff, I think, and it also adds uh, these 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 three different like bossish enemies that kind uh-huh. of taunt you, th- and 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 uh, they show up in missions throughout the throughout the campaign, and like they have different areas of the overworld map that they inhabit, so like you can choose which ones to fight when. It's not, it's it's okay. It, it adds some variety to the thing, but it's not a major game design impacting. Thing, it sounds in my like opinion. it's yeah, it's more of like a meta game uh, sort of improvement thing, like where yeah, to some extent. Well, it's actually the in a you do fight these bossish guys in the in the tactical missions too. Right. Like they show up sure. uh, randomly, and and then you just have to kind of like make them retreat or fight them until they run out of HP, and then they kind of like you know smoke bomb their way out of there. Which so, is kind of disappointing, but I don't know. It, it, so Enemy Within isn't... Uh, enemy Within, I keep saying that, sorry. Um, uh, War of the Chosen is, is not a big design leap forward as okay. much as XCOM 2 is over XCOM 2012. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And and now, so you feel like it's it this problem has basically been solved um, of this whole creeping forward thing and, it's, and it more or less works in a pretty healthy way the way you would want it to? Yeah, I I think so, but I think that there are still some flaws in the because after you break concealment in XCOM two, you still run into that same problem of you know you're just going to stumble into aliens. Oh right, and like that's that's still kind of a problem, and I think there are ways you can address that. Um, like well, what what would you yeah what would you suggest going forward to make XCOM three like what should they do? Well, an interesting system which I'm kind of prototyping and experimenting with now. I'm going to start working on it soon. Um, 
in a little in a little prototype I've been making to try and play with XCOM ideas, XCOM like ideas, is to uh, have a variable level of knowledge about what's going on in the fog of war based on how close you are to an area, you know, a certain area of the map. So, like you could say, when you're far away from aliens, they give like they could indicate in a big area, like oh hey, there's a pod, and it's like in this you know fifty foot radius area oh yeah but as you get closer they could make the radius smaller and smaller and smaller sure so like so like you know but so so it basically is a variable fog of war thing and that and that could significantly reduce the amount of um the, the amount of like unnecessary surprise and it could increase the the planning especially increase the your ability to plan around where enemies are and stuff mm. uh you you would of course not want to make this super accurate Right. Uh, without getting very close, because then the player could just try and dodge all the aliens. That kind of sucks. You don't want them to be able to dodge all the aliens. You want them right. to have to fight some of them. Yeah. But, but you want it to be a more conscious decision about, like, okay, when and where do I fight the aliens? And, like, who can I bypass? Who can't I bypass? What space is available to me to fight in? I think that, and, and once, once you give the player a good idea of what space they can fight in, I think that really opens up the combat system because then you can. Like do a lot more flanking. You can use the positional abilities a lot more without feeling like you're going to just, you know, blow up a wall and suddenly there's 15 aliens on your on your ass. Yeah, I, actually, I'm. Uh, I feel like some games have that. In fact, I think the original XCOM. I know it. I never used it, but I know it has uh, the original XCOM has a uh, like some kind of scanning device that like mm-hmm. is like a motion sensor thing, and I think it has it does something like that where it just sort of like tells you the direction that something's coming from. There's there are definitely games that do that. I'm almost surprised that they don't use like <clears throat> sound as like the theme as like the uh, the way of expressing that. Like so they you actually could just... do. They, oh, so do they, they do and they do it. They do an XCOM 2012. If you don't if you don't run into any aliens for a while, they'll give you a little sound cue thing, which is like a visual indicator that just points in the direction aliens are. It's very oh. vague though. Well, like, that's what I'm something. Is, yeah, it's it's something, but it's like you don't know how far away they are. Yeah, so it's yeah, still yeah. not. It's still like yeah. Like I I think that if you had a more if you had a more dynamic system, which did it based on distance and you know, it, it could also be, mo- you could also have like uh weather conditions in a mission or something like that, modulate how much information you get, like the, like how close you have to get to really be able to get better information and stuff like that. You could play with it and do interesting things, but I think that having it not just be a binary thing is very important and, ha- and, and having the, the resolution of the information you have get better, the closer you get to the aliens, instead of it just being on or off, is a very important thing for letting the player plan without letting them plan too much. Right. So if we were to boil this all into a kind of like lesson-ish thing about uh, about uh, game design, strategy game design in general, um, I think there would be some themes about like um, maybe non, uh, non-binary non uh, hidden information. Uh, like, right. you know, uh, that would be one thing. Um, but all, there's also a thing about like, timers and you know how to um like you you phrase your article carrot or stick and how to right. uh so that you know obviously you have this really huge like the the timer solution to me always in, in every game that there's a there's a hard timer like that it's, um it always feels like yeah it's it'll work but like players sort of have to they have to kind of like learn the tempo of that timer like how long it is and they have to right. like work with it sort of otherwise it's just this you know you're 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 playing and then all of a sudden the timer's up uh and it and it can be 
you know, I feel like people have complained about timers in sports where like if the timer's too long, you sort of don't feel it for the first, you know, giant chunk of time. So it's timers are interesting. um, And uh, yeah, yeah. How do you make someone progress through a level? And that's something that I had to I struggled with a lot with Oro. Um, Eventually, we came to that uh, system of the, the combo system where you just need to basically keep getting uh like kills quickly and and the the mission just will become more and more hard as time goes on so the longer you spend like wasting time the the your, the lower your odds get over time um but yeah it's an it's an interesting um question how would you how would you phrase like what is the takeaway for this yeah, I think that uh, you, what you have to recognize when you're designing a game especially one that has very long arcs like XCOM does is you gotta get the rewards and the penalties on different uh, on different scales, I guess. You have to think because the penalties in a game like XCOM are really negative, really, really, really intense and bad. And you can get you can incur these penalties for like really innocuous stuff, like just going a couple tiles too wide on a turn, or mm. like breaking through a window and jumping down instead of going down a ladder. And then right. suddenly, alien, then suddenly you you've like revealed a pod, and all your guys are out of position, and you're screwed. Yeah, and then, and then the result of that is like a guy dies forever. Right, and then all of the stuff that so like like, do, like you you could have a dozen missions that you've invested in get leveling up this guy and getting all these abilities, and then giving also great equipment that you've you know invested in them. You lose it all like just because you moved a little wrong. Yeah. You know, it's like there's, there's there's stuff you can do about it, but there's not a whole lot of stuff. So the so the penalties are super super steep, while at the same time the rewards are incremental and slow. Like you hmm. get some XP and you get a promotion every couple of missions. It's not like, you know, it's not like the the penalty where it's like oh you, you do the wrong thing and you're you're toast. It's hmm. like you do the right thing and you get a small pat on the back. So sure, trying to balance that, trying to balance those really big penalties with rewards is just it's feeding into the wrong part of the system almost that's so nice i'd say of, like yeah you want you want you want to try and put you want to try and if you're going to have a strong penalty that forces conservative play you want to you need to also have a strong penalty that forces aggressive play or else right. people are just going to play conservatively you can't do it with just rewards sure sure that makes sense yeah uh, another possible solution would be to you know tone down those super intense uh penalties and right. make it make it like you know maybe your guys maybe there isn't permadeath for your characters and maybe they just they get injured and they're out for the mission or maybe they're out for one mission after depends on how long they get injured you know mm-hmm. um uh which actually is already a system at least in the old XCOM. i forget if it's in 2012 injuries is that a thing uh injuries are a thing yes but that's yeah. also a penalty that's a penalty though it is that, but it's not quite as harsh penalty. i'm just yeah so, i'm just I'm just so, suggesting so here's, here's ways alternate. that it could be slightly less harsh, yeah. Yeah, so here's an alternate way of thinking about it, which I, I've been kind of toying with in my own design thinking around this kind of a game, is that, okay, what if you can only gain XP when you're not on missions, but and you have to go on missions in order to do other, to progress the game in other ways. So and when you go on missions, it makes you, it basically tires you out, and you don't get that important training that you'd get if you were not on the mission. So like each individual character then has to get rotated through missions and, it, and you can't bring them on missions too often. And it kind of breaks that loop of characters who go on missions are better than characters who don't. So mm-hmm. like you just bring the same people on missions all the time. Sure. And then you can also get rid of perma. You can get rid of permadeath because then you, you got, you're naturally, because I think that the idea of permadeath, like where it really shines 
in a system like this is that it forces squad rotation. And it forces you to bring a lot of different resources into battles and figure right. out how to solve problems in different ways. But like, why doesn't the game could take a much more aggressive stance on this and be like, hey, look, you're rotating guys out. Like the game like has very predictable things. The game should have very predictable things that say, like, hey, look, you bring somebody on a mission, you're rotating them out next mission. So like sure. you gotta keep mixing mixing and matching your resources. There's and an XCOM the labor union that uh that labor well, regulations. Well, it, it, that that's a silly way of thinking about it, but you could also think about it in terms of like combat stress. You know, yeah, like people for sure. Like 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 seeing aliens makes you insane and you could just have a sanity thing, even a basic a basic sanity thing, where like you go on a mission and you just take a you just take sanity damage, and that res, that re um, replenishes slowly, like over the course of a certain amount of like days. And you know, like so, if you do two missions a week, you can't bring a guy on two missions in one week. You have to bring him on like one mission every two or three weeks, mm -hmm. something like that. And and then suddenly, like all the stuff that makes permadeath so important to the system, kind of doesn't need permadeath anymore you can yeah. you can do that you can do that by manipulating the other incentives in the system yeah it's funny there's a there's uh i i was i played D, D recently and um and it's like a very casual group and this is sort of a tangent but um it's a very <laughs> casual group and it's just like it struck me that like wait there this game has permadeath like if my character like runs out of health and you know a few other conditions are met like i, I have to just delete my character because of rules like yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It just struck me that like there, you know, as much as particularly when in the roguelike sort of mini micro revolution uh, that people got really excited about permadeath because they are real consequences, which obviously mm -hmm. we want that in strategy games. But I also think that there's a way that we sort of um, maybe just accept uh, the mechanic of permadeath because uh, because it's there's there's a coolness to it. You know, it sort of feels like Iron Man and uh, and 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 it's it's an undeniably a consequence and i think we're very thirsty for consequences um yeah. in games and so and, maybe that's what has happened there yeah and but yeah and that puts us into that situation where it's like yeah okay if you have permadeath in your game yeah it's cool and edgy but at the same time it really flattens out what you can do with rewards to balance things out it, it makes a lot of things a lot more difficult it makes a lot of incentives a lot more difficult to balance because you have such a stark penalty that you can never make up for with any reward really yeah that's true all right uh so anything else you want to say on the topic before we move on um no i think that was a great conversation yeah Jason, thanks for having me on me too we'll definitely have you back on again soon all right, so that was my conversation with Eva Zayer. I again recommend that uh, if you enjoyed that conversation or if you are just generally interested in game design, check out his blog, nohidden.info. As always, I'm trying to encourage more people to do writing on game design. Um, I think that we had a big, you know, sort of boom of that in the uh, sort of mid 2000s to, uh, you know, mid, I don't know, to about 2010 or 2011, 2013. Um, not exactly sure what caused it to really stop, but they, they really kind of died off. I think there's a few elements of uh, that could help to explain that, some of the, which we've talked about in uh, my conversation with Will Parton on a few episodes back. Um, but yeah, I, I really encourage people just, you know, if you have some ideas, if you have an idea for a term, or, you know, a, a, a different way of looking at a problem, just write a blog post. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It could be like, you know, four paragraphs long or something. Um, and, you know, I just I really encourage that. Uh, send it to me. I'll check it out. Um, I love to, like, try to support people, you know, get the word out. Um, and you can also post it on my discord. And 
people love talking about game design stuff on the Discord, so please come by and do that. So thanks again to Evazair for that conversation, which I did think went really well. So the last thing I want to do before we wrap up today's show is talk about paper prototypes. Um, and this is going to be kind of quick, but I just want to talk about my experience doing paper prototypes because, you know, the common wisdom is um, with video games that uh, or with game design generally is that you should quickly prototype, you know, um, your idea in a very, very simple. And I do this um, because it's kind of pretty well accepted that you should and i understand the idea behind it but my experience particularly designing for video games is that it's not useful <laughs> like I've, I've never had it help me really um uh, or if i have it's been very in a, in a very small way i've never um found so it, it you know, in order to make a paper prototype of a video game, first of all, it's 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 tricky to figure out how to abstractify your video game. Um, obviously, this can only be really be done for like turn based games. You can't even begin to really do that so much with um, real time games. I mean, you kind of can if you have like some subsystems that you can abstract into, you know, uh, you know, and into paper components. Um, but it, it gets really abstract and weird. And I, I find that um and this is kind of a this is kind of an anti-formalist-ish sounding argument but like i find that like stuff doesn't um the abstracted version of stuff is just it's really not the same um as the non-abstracted version so you know the the far extreme version of what i'm saying here is that like you know, it's all aesthetic and that it's like it's all about like the sound that plays when you click the button and it has the rules like don't matter at all. It's all about like these sounds and visuals are giving you this this pleasure because of how they look and sound. And and I, I think a lot of people sort of believe that and it sort of shows in a lot of especially console games, which are entirely about their visuals and their audio visual immersion and stuff like that. And their rule sets are just like nothing. Um, I'm certainly not saying that. But I do think that, um, you know, uh, one of the big ways that a system communicates itself to the player at all and that the player can kind of like connect with the system is through stuff like audiovisual feedback, um, stuff like seeing an animation um, happen. So, like, for example, if you have an ability and it, you know, has a I don't know, it's like let's say it's a real time game and it has like a two second cooldown you know, and you have an animation or if you don't have an animation, like the difference there is bigger than it would seem to a purely former formal design designer, right? Like a, a totally formal game design perspective would say it doesn't matter what's like really being shown on the screen. You know, the all that matters is like what actually the state, the game state is. And I find that that's just not true. Um, and it's not so much because like, oh, it's not fun without the animations it's more that like the game doesn't communicate itself properly without some animations some feedback some sound some things like that there's just not a communication happening and there's like a disconnect i find this happens a lot in early like even in early builds like the early alpha builds of like someone's indie game that they're working on and like it's even if I understand the rules, I can't really enjoy it and like internalize it and play it properly without some of that audiovisual feedback. Um, 
you know, if I really stuck with it, and, you know, and, and, and stuck with it for long enough, maybe I would like sort of get over that and sort of like learn its language and be able to really engage with it. I mean, I've certainly been able to play, you know, things that have nothing like audiovisual feedback, although most of these are, um, you know, super like abstract kinds of games, um, Puerto Rico and, uh, you know, Race of the Galaxy kind of things. Um, yeah, so so when it comes to more like I'm thinking about like roguelikey indie games, um, I find that it's hard to apply emotional energy. And, I, you know, I think we have to admit that, like, if you're going to play something, there's an emotional like human component there of like you're spending you're choosing to spend your time with this thing overdoing a thousand other things that you could be doing. And so it's not so much that you need to like win them over with some great drawing or something like that. It's more that you have to speak to them in uh, and and communicate, have, make sure that your game is communicating with them and engaging with them as they are with it. I think a lot of times these like very simple early versions of things are entirely one way conversations where where the. Um, like we're talking to the game, but it's sort of not talking back to us at all. And so anyway, getting back to paper prototypes, I found I find that that has that problem, but even worse. You know, I remember making paper, paper prototypes. I've done it for every game I've ever made. Uh, I remember paper prototypes, several of them for Oro. Uh, I'm actually there was a big phase of paper prototyping. Probably my peak of paper prototyping was for Empire, the deck building strategy game, which, um, you know, was it helpful I don't know. I mean, I it's I don't I don't I kind of don't think it was terribly helpful um, because that thing that I made on the board on the table with paper and cards was actually rather abstracted still from and, and necessarily so from the rule set. So number one, you can't ever really copy the rule set one to one. You kind of have to like, you know, cheat stuff out. Also, it's so cumbersome that you're not going to play your paper prototype a lot. You're just not gonna. I mean, feel free to disagree with me on this, but like in my experience, like, you know, I will I'll spend uh, like an hour building the prototype and then I'll spend, I don't know, another hour or two playing it, you know, and, and messing with it and like modifying it and, and kind of extracting some lessons with it. Um, actually, I find the most useful <laughs> is even just in the process of building the paper prototype and then just looking at it. When I first like look at it, I see it on the table. I see I see my game idea sort of realized in a physical form. Um, that's uh, actually more informative to me a lot of the time than playing it um, because it's very difficult to play. It's very difficult to like, you know, really sort of dive into. I might even say it's almost impossible to play because you're you're trying to keep your original rule set in mind and the rule set of what's right in front of you on the table, and you're trying to play as a player, even though you know everything's imbalanced, and like you know, you you also want to fight that. It's the reason we need play testers, right? Like, because game designers sort of can't play their own games to some extent because they're always thinking like, oh, but this could change. This this should be like this. Uh, you know, thinking about uh, the next patch change, and and so I find paper prototyping really difficult, very low uh, utility particularly for video games, even, and, you know, impossible for real-time games. Um, and so I just thought, I don't know, I've never heard anybody really talk about paper, paper prototypes this way. I, I tend to hear people just, like, singing their praises. Um, and now one thing I will say in defense of 
maybe not paper prototypes, but um, one thing that's sort of related that I do like is really quickly, iteratively making uh, throwaway board games. I used to, for years, uh, actually, I think there was one year where every night I would write out a board game rule set, um, tabletop rule set. And I, I actually never play tested most of those. But, um, you know, I would just make one, just design one and just throw it in the garbage. And I think that that is really worth doing for designers. I think also just making um, like so. So here's another point, like um, with uh, tabletop games that I'm actually making and I'm actually working on. I often find like so I'll start making a paper prototype for my card game and I actually find like I should just make like the first version of the game like it's more work to just like, you know, so like I'm going to add like uh, the necessary text and like make it playable. Um, why, you know, why not? It's going to take me a little longer and it's going to be, it's a little bit wasteful, but then people can actually start playing the game. And to me, that's important. That's what's important. That's, that's my kind of big takeaway lesson here is that the paper prototyping, you know, play testing quote unquote with like this thing that's like one fifth of the game. Um, it's not that valuable. I, I really recommend instead get as fast as possible to something that's playable, whether that's like an early version of your game or, you know, don't think about prototypes as much. I mean, I, I guess it's sort of a blurry line, like what's a prototype and what is just an early version, an unfinished version of the game. But I, I recommend thinking more about um, along the lines of like, I'm just making the game. And this is just like as far as I can get with it right now. And here it is. Let's play it and make it as playable as possible. Um, sometimes that means even like, you know, making art, making uh, animations, adding sounds, like doing whatever it takes to make this thing more playable. Because remember that you're making something that's like really going to have a, you know, an engagement with a human being. And I think that's especially for people who like probably like this podcast. Um, we need to remember. So, Yeah. Let me know what you think about what are your experiences experiences with paper prototyping. Let me know. Um, uh, and I'd love to hear from you about that. As always, if you enjoyed this show, please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Keith Bergun. Um, I could really use the help and things have been going better and better. And it really is. I'm this episode. And I think the last episode, I'm going to put them both up on YouTube with like some very, very simple graphics. That's the, I'm, I just want to keep expanding what we're doing here. And you're helping that make that happen. And I really appreciate that. Thank you so much to all my current patrons. Uh, your help really supports me and, and lets me do this. So um, thank you so much. And send me your game design blog. I will see you next time.